we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today may be Halloween, but the bulls had no fear. The U.S. stock markets closed higher today for the second consecutive day for the first time in the month of October. And a lot of traders are probably happy uh, that the month of October is over. Despite the back-to-back rally, this is still the biggest decline in a month for the NASDAQ since 2008. And in fact, the rally off of yesterday's lows, I think, was better than 1,100 points. You know, we had this huge gain. And even though today we were up, the Dow was up better than 200 points, 241 points, it was up about 450 points going into the last hour. So we did give back a couple of hundred points of that gain, which to me looked pretty weak. The NASDAQ had a 2% higher close. It was up 144 points. But you look at the Russell 2000, much smaller gain there. That index up just a third of 1%. And the Dow transports, they were barely positive. Not even two-tenths of 1%, just a 15-point rise in the Dow transports. Yet, nonetheless, all of the bulls were out in force on the financial networks claiming that the correction is over. Everybody was confident that the lows are in, that this big back-to-back rally is proof, and you better buy now, otherwise you're going to miss the rally, and this is a typical correction, and now it has run its course And you know what? 
if this really was the end of the correction, most likely there wouldn't be so many people that were so confident that it was over. You'd have a lot more fear, especially on a Halloween. The fact that there is no fear, to me, shows that it's more likely that this is not the end of the correction, but the beginning of the bear market, and that this rally is the correction, right? In bull markets, the market going down is a correction because the trend is still positive, still up. Well, in a bear market, it's the opposite. The rallies are the corrections. And so if this is a bear market, then the rally that we just had is the correction. Now, maybe there's more to go in the correction and maybe not. But nobody seems to be worried that we're in a bear market. And if nobody is worried about the bear market, then there's probably a pretty good probability that we're in one. I mean, what is it that's more likely that the longest bull market in history is continuing and we just had a correction and we're going to make new highs and we're going to extend the longest bull market in history or that the longest bull market in history has finally come to a long overdue end. I mean, what is more probable? I mean, yes, I get, I mean, a trend in motion can stay in motion and maybe you should bet that the trend continues. But given all of the other warning signs that are out there, you know, it wasn't just the stock market that got beaten up this month. Look at the junk bond market. Junk bonds had their worst month since 2008. And, you know, when it comes to the junk bond market, it's not just about rising interest rates. It's about the default risk. That's really what determines the spread between a junk bond and bonds of higher credit quality or of treasury bonds. It is what is the risk that the company is going to default. And when the spreads were low, and believe me, the, the spreads between junk bonds and credit quality or treasuries were the lowest ever. That meant that investors were assigning a very low probability that companies, despite the fact that they were loaded up with debt, they had so much debt that their debt was junk rated, right? It was not investment quality. But the thought was, hey, the economy is so good that the chances of these bonds going into default are relatively slim. Therefore, we're willing to buy them and accept the higher risk in exchange for a higher yield. Well, now the market is starting to worry more about default and therefore they want a higher premium to accept the risk that the company is going to default. Well, if the economy is booming, why would people think that the risk of a company defaulting is going up? Because when the economy is really good, that's when companies don't default. It's when the economy is bad. That's when companies might default. And that's what I talked about on my last podcast when I talked about GE cutting their dividend. And by the way, yesterday, GE got obliterated. And in fact, it was down again today. GE closed at $10.10, down $0.08, cents, and it made a new multi-year low or a new all-time, no, not all-time low, because GE was lower than this in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but it's the first time it's been below 10, I think, in eight, nine years. But it actually made a new low for the move today down at 980. But the reason that GE got clobbered by 9% yesterday was because they had announced the evening before that they were eliminating their dividend. And so obviously, uh, GE is a lot less valuable when it can't pay a dividend. Well, one of the other things that's going to happen, a lot of companies don't even have money to pay dividends, and they're using their money to pay their bondholders. 
Well, if interest rates go up and the economy weakens and their earnings go down, they may not be able to pay their bondholders and they just default. Now, if you cut your dividend, I mean, you know, you, you're not legally obligated to pay your dividend. So you can, you can cut your dividend. But if you decide to cut off paying your bondholders, you're bankrupt. And now, you know, you're getting liquidated in bankruptcy and the bondholders are going to get whatever assets they can to repay the debt. So this is a sign of problems in the economy. And the spreads that we see now between junk bonds and credit quality bonds are going to get a lot higher. And of course, during this next downturn, a lot of companies whose bonds have high ratings, those companies' bonds are going to become junk bonds because their balance sheets are going to be impaired by higher interest rates and declining revenues. So a lot of bonds that are credit quality, bonds that maybe are AA rated or some investment quality, they're going to go down a few notches and all of a sudden more bonds can find themselves in the junk category because of a slowing economy. But all the bulls who are just so confident that this is a correction that's already over are ignoring all the signs that the economy is not nearly as strong as everybody wants to pretend it is. In fact, we got the Chicago PMI uh, today that came out for October. And yeah, it was still a big number at 58.4, but it's below the 60.4 of the previous month. And it's below the 60 that had been expected. So you're getting a slowdown in this number. You know, we do get the a non-farm payroll number that comes out on Friday. We got to look at it with the ADP number that came out earlier this morning, which was a beat. They were looking for 178,000 jobs for October, and the print was 227. So that was, what, a 40, 49,000 job beat. Now, they did revise the prior month down by uh, 12,000 jobs, but still overall, you know, you're talking about almost 30,000 jobs or you know, more than they had been looking for. But we're going to get the official number on, on Friday. But look at the housing numbers. You know, even the home builders, they were up this morning, but they could not hold their gains. They almost all finished in the red today. Uh, so not participating in the rally by the bell. But I read an article that said that the California real estate market is basically the worst it's been for sales in 10 years. And for Northern California, the Bay Area, it's the worst that it's been in 11 years. And we're just getting started. This is so early in the downturn. You know, the Fed's only got rates at 2%. 30-year mortgages have just finally gotten back to 5%. They're still low. And remember, the slowdown that we're seeing now is a result of the rate hikes from a year ago or two years ago. There's a big lag in there. So we're not even close to feeling the effects of the most recent rate hikes. We're feeling the effects of the rate hikes that happened a long time ago. The negative effect of the rate hikes that we just got, th that that's coming down the line. And of course, if the Fed continues uh, to hike rates, then the effects of those are going to be felt more and more. Now, I was listening to this guy. He was on CNBC sometime today. And this guy was like so incredibly bullish. And he was out there talking about how for the next several years, like he knows what's going to happen over the next several years. But he says the whole story is going to be about America and how strong the economy is and how much better our economy is than all the other economies in the world. And so the dollar is going to keep going up and the Fed's going to keep on raising interest rates. And so we're going to have higher interest rates. We're going to have a stronger dollar. We're going to have a booming stock market. Everything's going to be great. 
And, I mean, this guy couldn't be more clueless. I mean, if the U.S. economy is really going to stay strong and if interest rates are going to keep rising, how is it possible that the economy can continue to stay strong with high interest rates when the economy or the strength of the economy is predicated on debt, on people not only going on into debt and taking on new debt, but people have to be able to pay the interest on the money that they've already borrowed. I mean, this guy could not be more wrong. But this is the type of attitude that you have at market tops. There, nothing worried this guy. You know, rising interest rates aren't a problem. He doesn't even care about the debt load. Look, the national debt clock now is about to hit $21.7 trillion. We're basically adding over $100 billion worth of debt per month to the national debt. Now, that doesn't count the debt that the states and the you know municipalities are racking up. That's just the debt that the federal government is racking up in good times. You know, we could hit $22 trillion by the end of the year. Now, we may not. It may take until sometime in January for the national debt clock to hit $22 trillion, uh, but it's going to keep on going up. You know, if we really had this booming economy like this guy thought, the debt would not be, you know, accumulating like this. We would not have record budget deficits and record trade deficits if the economy was booming. Booming economies are supposed to produce surpluses, right? If the economy is booming, the government should be collecting a lot more tax revenue from all these companies and all these individuals who are making all this money. And if the economy is booming, we should be creating so many jobs that fewer people are collecting welfare or food stamps or other type of government benefits. So a booming economy should produce surpluses or at least reduce the deficits. Instead, the deficits are skyrocketing. If we really had a booming economy, our trade deficits would be coming down. A booming economy is more productive. A booming economy produces more output. The factories make more things, and those things can be exported. Or if we're making more things, then we don't need to import as many things because we made the things ourselves. The truth of the matter is, we don't have a booming economy. We have a bubble. And when you have a bubble economy, debts go up. Budget deficits go up, trade deficits go up, because you're not productive. You're just going into debt to consume. And that's all we have. And, you know, one of the interesting things about all these bulls uh, talking on these financial shows, one of the things that they said that I agree with is that nothing has changed, right? They're looking at the stock market. They have this big drop in October, and they're like, well, nothing has changed. So why are we worried? Everything is fine. It's still a bull market because the fundamentals are exactly the same. Nothing changed in October. It's the same economy that we had in September. And so there's nothing to worry about. We haven't had any real bad news. Now, of course, there has been bad news that's out there that is routinely ignored. And, you know, we had bad news in September that was ignored. I mean, bad news is always ignored, right? So in that respect, it's not different. So all these bulls are saying, hey, nothing has changed. So we don't have to worry. And what they don't understand is nothing has changed which is exactly why they should be worrying because the economy was a bubble back then and it's still a bubble. The only difference is the bubble may have pricked. See, the fundamentals have not changed. That's true. They were lousy before October and they're lousy in October. That's what they don't get. The market never should have been going up. The difference is now it's going down. It should have been going down a long time ago. 
So what's changed is the momentum of the market. What's changed is the direction. But the fundamentals have not changed. The fundamentals have been lousy the entire time. It's just that all these bulls who are so optimistic never realized how bad the fundamentals are. So they don't realize that nothing changing is a problem because it's been bad the whole time. What is changing is just the momentum and eventually it will be the perception. Eventually all the bad news that has been ignored will all of a sudden matter, right? All the debt didn't matter until it matters, right? The debt is going to be a problem at some point. The budget deficits, the trade deficits are going to be a problem. It's not like they're not a problem now. They are a problem, just nobody cares about it. But when somebody cares about the problem, that's when the problem becomes real because that's when the problem is felt. But it's real the whole time, whether people want to be oblivious. And you see this all over the world. I pointed that out on this podcast, whether it was Greece or or Puerto Rico or any of these countries that had a lot of debt. Nobody worries about the debt while it's being accumulated. It's just once the bubble bursts, that's when everybody becomes worried. But that's not the time to get worried. You should be worried uh, when the debt is being accumulated. But again, nobody does that. Nobody wants to be the party pooper. So nobody has been worried about this bubble while it was inflating, just like nobody was worried about the housing bubble or nobody was worried about the dot-com bubble. They just try to pick up the pieces after it pops. Except this time, as I've been talking about, it's going to be an impossible task because when you blow a bubble this big, there's no way to inflate it. This is the end of the Fed's bubble-blowing days. When this one pops, that's end. I mean, they're going to try. You know, they're going to wait, you know, as long as possible because the Fed is going to be in denial. Uh, but by the time it figures it out and starts cutting rates and doing more quantitative easing, it's not going to work. I mean, it's not going to work in that it's not going to blow another big bubble and we can all pretend that all the problems have been solved. It's going to usher in a whole new problem because it's going to crush the dollar. It's going to accelerate inflation. And then we're going to have a inflationary recession. And if the real estate market is this week now, I mean, think about that. If we've got a California real estate market, sales are the weakest they've been in 10 years. And this is when unemployment is still relatively low, when mortgage rates are still relatively low. Imagine what's going to happen when unemployment goes up and mortgage rates go up. And imagine what's going to happen when the supply of homes for sale explodes because so many homes that are not now on the market come on the market, which is what's going to happen, uh, then the prices really implode. Now, I mentioned uh, Puerto Rico just in talking about potential debt problems. Well, you know, I just read today that the Puerto Rico House has passed some changes to Acts 20 and 22, which are the tax incentive acts that help bring me and my company to Puerto Rico. And a lot of other people who I've met who live in Puerto Rico have been encouraged to move to Puerto Rico because of the favorable tax treatment. You know, when Americans move to Puerto Rico, they lose the right to vote. So I will not be able to vote in the congressional elections on, uh, on Tuesday, even though I still have a summer home in Connecticut. I am not a Connecticut resident, so I cannot vote uh, for Congress in Connecticut. Puerto Rico sends no representatives to Congress, uh, so I got nobody to vote for there. And a couple of years from now, when the presidential elections are in, I can't vote for president either. And that's the same. Any American who moves to Puerto Rico, if you take up residence in Puerto Rico, you can't vote. Any American who leaves Puerto Rico and takes up residence in one of the 50 states, the minute they get there, they can register to vote. Right. So if you live in Puerto Rico, you can't vote. 
But if you live in Puerto Rico, you don't have to pay income taxes. And that's been a great deal uh, for the people who live there. Uh, But Puerto Rico imposes its own income tax, which it finally reduced to encourage entrepreneurs, uh, wealthier individuals to relocate to Puerto Rico, uh, to open up businesses, to hire people and do all sorts of good things that benefit the Puerto Rican economy. And that is exactly what's happening. You know, I pointed out on one of my earlier podcasts that GQ article that was written by a real liberal uh, that had a very negative slant that came out uh, a few weeks ago. And maybe that is part of the reason for this, uh, this bill. But this guy was actually quite jealous of the fact that you have all these so-called rich people in Puerto Rico paying low taxes, and that bothered him. He doesn't like uh, somebody paying low taxes. And he tried to make fun or belittle the fact that, you know, according to the Puerto Rican government, only 12,000 or 15,000 jobs have been directly created uh, by the, the people who came there for those tax grants. And of course, I pointed out that, well, that's eight jobs per person. I mean, that's pretty good if everyone coming to Puerto Rico to pay lower taxes created eight jobs directly. I mean, that's fantastic. That doesn't even count the jobs that are created indirectly as a result of their presence. But that's a lot of jobs for a small number of people. Uh, But I just read that they're thinking about ending those incentives uh, and basically allowing people all of next year to apply. But after that, basically ending the program. And for that last year, they are thinking of increasing the tax for new people, people who are already there are exempted because they have a decree. They have a government contract, which is what I have. So no matter what the Puerto Rican government does uh, for people who come there in the future, they can't change what they've already done to get me there in the past. That's the only reason that I was confident enough to move there. I didn't want the government pulling the rug out from under me once I got there. You know, I didn't want them to lure me there with low taxes and then clobber me with high taxes. I mean, I'm not that stupid. I mean, I see all the debt that the Puerto Rican government has. I'm not going to show up in a democracy where the people can outvote me. And once I get there, vote to steal all my money. So I made sure that I had a contract with the government that says that doesn't matter what the people want. I got a contract with the government that says they can't raise my taxes, which they can't do. But obviously they can change the contracts that they enter into with future people who decide to come to Puerto Rico. And so what they're, what they're proposing is that they increase the tax uh, from 0 to 10% for capital gains for individuals. And the corporate tax, they want to increase that from 4% to 10% and then phase it out. Now, why would Puerto Rico want to do something like this? I think it's obviously about envy and jealousy and politics because, yes, there are a number of poor people in Puerto Rico who don't like the fact that wealthy people are moving to Puerto Rico and paying a lower rate of tax than people who already live in Puerto Rico and maybe who earn a lot less money. And that is true. I mean, you can have a guy that's earning a million dollars a year and he can come here uh, and he could pay, you know, maybe a total tax of maybe $100,000 because, you know, you have to pay some income taxes on some money before you start getting the 4% on your marginal. So let's say a guy comes over and, you know, he's going to pay 100000 a year in tax and make a million dollars. And he's only paying a tax rate of 10%. And maybe if he was born and raised in Puerto Rico and he had the same income, well, maybe he'd be paying 30% tax. And so the Puerto Ricans are really upset that this guy is getting a good deal. And they say, hey, let's take that away. Let's make sure and, and tax have the rich people pay the higher tax rate. Well, the problem is if, the, if we have the higher tax rate, the rich person is not moving to Puerto Rico. So instead of getting... 
30%, or right now, let's say they're getting 10% of a million, and they say, hey, we want to raise it to 30%, they're not going to get 30% of a million. They're going to get 30% of zero because the guy's not going to come. And, and so 10% of, uh, of a big number, you know, is a lot more than 30% of nothing. And even if you look at the average guy who has moved to Puerto Rico as a result of these tax grants, the average person who's there is paying much more taxes as far as the dollar number, the amount of money paid by far than the average Puerto Rican who's already there. I mean, I don't know what I pay. Maybe, maybe my tax rate is 50, 100 times what the average Puerto Rican pays in taxes, even though my tax rate is very low, certainly much lower than it would be if I was still uh, working in the United States. So my rate is very low, but the actual dollar amount of taxes I pay every year in Puerto Rico is actually a pretty big number when you add them all up, right? All the taxes I pay. And it's not like, you know, I'm a big drain on the, the, the social services. I mean, my kid's in private school, so I don't even use the public schools. I mean, sure, I drive on the roads once in a while, but, you know, I paid a tax to bring a car in. You know, there's a big uh, a tax to import cars. I pay gasoline taxes. I mean, I, so I pay for the roads and there's tolls. I mean, every time I use the roads, I mean, I'm paying a toll uh, on these government. So I'm paying for the roads. I haven't, we have a private security uh, uh, you know, guards where I live. So I'm not even using the local police much. We have private security. Um, you know, so how much am I using of the public services? Very little, but I'm spending all this money into the economy. Not only have I hired a bunch of people, uh, but you know, I mean, we're I'm remodeling a house. So I'm contractors, like we eat out. I mean, we, you know, we do, we do all sorts of things. I mean, if you owned a business in Puerto Rico, whether it was a, a dry cleaner or a restaurant or, you know, a yogurt shop or a hair salon, right? Any of these businesses, wouldn't you love it if a bunch of rich people moved in right around your business? Of course, that's more customers, more customers who can spend, can patronize your business. I mean, what fools, why would Puerto Rico want to turn this off? All because of envy and jealousy. Yes, we don't like these rich people coming here and not paying a high tax rate. So we'd rather no more rich people come here at all. And so we cut off our nose despite our face, right? Because if you jack the taxes all the way back up, people aren't going to come. It's a big deal to relocate, to pick up your business, to move it to Puerto Rico. And then, of course, when you get to Puerto Rico, there's a lot of other stuff you got to put up with, right? I mean, a lot of things take a long time when you're in Puerto Rico when it comes to a lot of the services that you may need to run your business. Now, I do believe that over time, that's going to improve. I think as more uh, people from the mainland move there and start demanding a higher quality and the competition steps up, then I think, I, think, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be a natural byproduct. But if they shut this off, if this thing actually passes, then that's not going to change. They're not going to get all these business. In fact, I've already talked to people who've already told me, gee, you know, I was thinking about buying this property, but I don't know if I should buy now because this is going to really hurt real estate values because if no more people are coming to the island, that's going to hurt the real estate market. I know somebody was telling me, hey, I was thinking about remodeling my house. I don't want to spend the money now because I don't want to just throw my money away. If the, house is, the house is going to go down in value. And of course, for business decisions, if people were thinking about relocating a business, well, hey, they're going to think twice about doing that, right? But this is how liberals are, right? It's all about form over substance, just what makes you feel good? Just like you can pass the minimum wage law and feel good about yourself because you've just made a statement. I think it's not right for people to get low-paying jobs. I think earning $5 an hour, $8 an hour 
is morally wrong, so we're going to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage. And now you can feel good about yourself, that you don't want people to be exploited. And you can ignore the fact that lots of people just got fired and lots of people are never going to get hired. Right? You can ignore all the damage that is being created because you know it doesn't affect you. These well-intentioned laws don't affect the people who write them, don't affect the rich liberals who support them, but they do affect a lot of people who are adversely impacted by what liberals do to make themselves feel good. And this is the same thing about Puerto Ricans who get envious of wealthy people paying a low marginal rate of tax because they're still paying a lot of taxes on average, much more than you know, your typical Puerto Rican is paying, even if the rate is lower, the dollar, the, the, the number on the check is much bigger. So Puerto Rico is getting the benefit of all this money to spend on whatever infrastructure, whatever social programs it wants to blow the money on. It's getting all that money. But if they give in to the politics of envy and they say, OK, yeah, we don't want the rich. We don't want these rich people paying these low taxes. Fine. Then the rich people are going to stop coming. I mean, the rich people that are already there, their taxes aren't going up because they're not being affected. All you're doing is saying going forward, if any rich people come, then they're going to have to pay a high rate of tax. And what that means is the rich people aren't going to come anymore, especially when you look at how high the debt already is in Puerto Rico. Because even if you think, well, look, the the marginal tax is only 30%. That's not that bad. That's lower than it is in some states. Yeah, well, what if you move to Puerto Rico while the tax is 30% and then they jack it up to 50% or 60% or 70%? I mean, you would have to be a complete moron to move to Puerto Rico without the protection of a contract with the government. I mean, that was the one quote that I had in that GQ article. I said, who is going to come to a bankrupt nation and pay high taxes? Especially when you know they're going to keep raising your taxes because they don't want to cut any government spending. So where are they going to get the money? Well, they're going to get it from the rich because the rich are always going to be outvoted. Uh, So this is just, you know, again, another example of uh, Democrats who legislate with, with with their emotions and not with their mind. They don't understand the benefits. So they want to take the one good thing that they've got going for them in Puerto Rico and they want to end it because some people are jealous or envious of the fact that uh, wealthy people are able to come to Puerto Rico and not get completely screwed. Last thing, though, I want to talk about on this podcast is the president now talking about ending the citizenship at birth in the United States. If you do not know this by now, anybody who is born in the United States is automatically an American citizen. It doesn't matter uh, where their parents are citizens. So, you know, a couple of people are here on vacation and they have a baby, that baby is American. doesn't matter, you know, what the citizenship is of their parents, or even if somebody crosses the border illegally, right, and then they give birth, that baby is now an American citizen. So now the mother is an illegal alien, but the baby is an American citizen. And now it's like, well, how do you separate this American citizen from his mother, right? So a lot of people, they call these anchor babies, right? And so people would say, hey, I'm going to have a baby in America, and now I'm going to anchor myself to the country. And of course, a lot of people who are upset at illegal immigration would like to end this. And Donald Trump is talking about ending it with an executive order, which you can't do. I mean, you cannot change the Constitution just with the decree of the president, executive order. I mean, if you could do that, why would we even have all these amendments in the first place? And of course, we don't have that many amendments because it is very hard to do. The founding fathers made amending the Constitution 
very difficult. And, you know, you've got a 14th Amendment, and you can't just get rid of that or change that with an executive order. I mean, if the president could change the Constitution with an executive order, just get rid of the income tax, right? That'd be easy. There are a lot of things that you could get rid of if you can get rid of them with executive orders, but you can't do it. Now, of course, there's a lot of good stuff in the Constitution also, and we don't want the president to be able to get rid of that with an executive order. So there's a way to do it. Uh, and the president cannot simply uh, amend the Constitution because there's a portion of it that he doesn't like. If you want to change it, there is a methodology for doing that. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen by the election. It's not even going to happen uh, by 2020 election. In fact, it's probably not going to happen at all. But one of the things that nobody wants to talk about when it comes to this citizenship by birth is that it's not all gravy train for the people who uh, you know, are born into American citizenship. For a lot of people, an American citizenship is a liability. It's like an albatross around your neck. Because if you happen to be an American citizen, because your parents happen to be vacationing in America and you just happen to be born or they gave birth and you were here, even if they leave the next week and you never come back, the IRS can be looking for you for taxes. There are a lot of Americans, and I think I've spoken about this on the podcast in the past. There are a lot of people all around the world who you know, owe a lot of taxes to the Internal Revenue Service because the, the U.S. is, I think, unique. There's one other country, and I always forget the name of it because it's a tiny little country that nobody's ever heard of. But other than that tiny country, America is the only country in the world that taxes its citizens on their worldwide income. So if you happen to be British and, you know, you're living in the United States, Britain doesn't tax you on your income. If you're living in the United States, you don't lose your British citizenship. You can go back to Britain anytime you want. But if you're not living in Great Britain, if you're living in the United States or anywhere else in the world, and you make money, you know you don't have to pay any taxes. You're free, right? Your, your British citizenship doesn't cost you anything. Uh, same thing if you're Australian or if you're French or if you're Brazilian. You can go anywhere in the world, maintain your citizenship, and not have to pay tribute to the home country for the privilege of maintaining your citizenship. But America is different, right? No matter where in the world you live, if you earn money, the U.S. government wants its cut. And if you don't pay, then you got to pay interest and penalties. And of course, there are a lot of people that don't even realize the laws. You know, they, they were unfortunate enough to be born in America. And now 40 or 50 years later, they've never stepped foot in this country, but they owe hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in taxes. Because 20 years ago, they sold a piece of real estate, they had a capital gains, and they never declared it. And now, you know, the interest and penalties have compounded over the years and they're in hock up to their eyeballs. Now, of course, you know, maybe the U.S. government will never be able to collect, uh, but that's beside the point. And of course, now, so there's a lot of people now that want to get rid of their U.S. citizenship. And I talked about it on this podcast that we've jacked up the price of the form. It used to be free. The form was free. Uh, and you can, and, and in order to, to renounce your U.S. citizenship, though, you, you had to do it from abroad. You couldn't do it from the United States. So first you have to leave the country. But if you're already out of the country and you've never been here, well, then you go to an American consulate and you request the form and you fill it out and you can give up your citizenship. But they jacked up the price of that form. It's now over $5,000 to get rid of your U.S. citizenship. It ain't cheap. It's like a divorce. You got to get an attorney to renounce your U.S. citizenship to get out from under that obligation. So one of the reasons that a lot of people in the U.S. Congress may not want to change that aspect of the Constitution is they like the fact 
that every U.S. citizen is obligated to pay taxes to the United States government. So if we are going to change the Constitution to uh, you know, amend citizenship by birth, I think we should change that part too. I think we should also state that if you are an American citizen, but you decide to leave the country, if you don't live in America, then America isn't going to tax you on the income that you're earning. After all, if you're not living here and you're not utilizing all these so-called government services, why should you have to pay the full freight as if you were here, right? Why can't America treat Americans the same way that every other country treats their citizens? And if you go and live in another country, then, well, then you pay the taxes in the other country. Because if somebody in Britain, if a British citizen moves to America and starts earning money in America, well, America's taxing them. America doesn't care if you're a U.S. citizen or British citizen. If you're here on U.S. soil and you're working and you're earning money, then you're subject to the U.S. income tax. But if you're, if you're not in America and you're not earning your money in America, why should you pay the U.S. tax? And in fact, you know, it's so complicated. Our tax laws are so cumbersome and complicated because of this worldwide taxation system. It makes America so much less competitive on the global scale. Let's just even it out and just eliminate it and have the territorial-based tax system that almost every other nation in the world has. You know, I mentioned this too on an earlier podcast, but obviously I know that not everybody listens to all of my podcasts, and I know I am picking up some new listeners. So I'm going to point this out again, but very few people know where the worldwide taxation system came from, why we even have that in America. And it started in the Civil War. See, the Civil War was the first time Americans paid an income tax. You know, I mean, a lot of bad stuff happened in the Civil War. Uh, the income tax uh, was one of the worst ones. The other one was paper money, right? We had no paper money in America until the Civil War, and we had no income tax. And in order to win the Civil War, the North instituted an income tax and began printing its own paper money, right? The, the greenbacks. Now, when the war was over, they ended the income tax and they stopped issuing greenbacks. And so we went back to a constitutional gold standard. And of course, when they, when they printed all this money, they didn't exercise their monetary powers. They said it was necessary and proper to maintain the union. I mean, we were at war. It was an emergency. And the only way the North uh, could pay the soldiers was if they could create money. And so it was a wartime power that they relied on. They, they didn't look at the monetary portions of the Constitution because everybody knew that the government didn't have the right to print money in the Constitution, but it was a war. And, and so in a war, you can kind of do things that you can't really do in, in peace. And so that's how they argued it. But that's also where the income tax came from because, hey, we need the money. It's an emergency. And so we're going to have this income tax. And when the war was over, they got rid of the tax. I mean, it didn't show up again until, you know, 1913, right, when we had the, the 13th Amendment. And they, they brought it back in 1896. They had a corporate income tax or a tax that was declared unconstitutional. Then they had to amend the Constitution and everything. But Americans didn't pay the income tax really again until 1913. Uh, but some Americans paid it during the Civil War. But what happened during the Civil War is a lot of people didn't want to fight in the North. I mean, in the South, yeah, everybody volunteered. In the South, it was, you know, your, your, your patriotic duty to fight in that war because the South was fighting for independence. I mean, they weren't necessarily fighting to preserve slavery. It was more of an issue of preserving the, the, the South. I mean, people were fighting for their states. I mean, people back then had a much higher allegiance to their state 
than to the United States. And so the, the South was pretty much all volunteer. I mean, they didn't have to draft uh, their, their soldiers. Everybody was just signing up. But in the North, it was a different story. A lot of people didn't want to fight in that war. A lot of people couldn't have cared less. I mean, if the South wants to leave, let them leave, right? I mean, they want to go, let them go, right? I mean, they, they didn't want to fight to keep the South in the Union the same way that Southerners were willing to fight to get out of the Union. And so the, what, what the North had to do is they had to draft people, right? They had, and they had some of the biggest riots, or probably the biggest riot up until then that we ever had was in New York. People were rioting because they were protesting the draft. Well, a lot of people, in order to avoid the draft, they went to Canada, right? That's where draft dodging in Canada got started. People didn't want to be drafted into the army, and so they went to Canada. And so when they passed the income tax, in order to tax the people who went up to Canada to dodge the draft, that is why that first income tax said that we're going to tax American incomes no matter where in the world they live. Because they didn't want the people who left the country to escape the draft to also escape the income tax. So they wanted to make sure, okay, you're going to leave the country so we don't draft you, but you're still got to pay your income taxes. And that's where the concept came from. Now, the income tax was, you know, repealed after the war, but when they resurrected it, they resurrected it with that concept. That was still intact. So that's where it comes from. It comes from the Civil War. So the war is over. You know, nobody's being drafted. I think that if we're going to keep the income tax, then we ought to at least exempt those American citizens from paying it who do not live in this country. Now, ideally, we would exempt everybody from the income tax. Ideally, we would completely eradicate the income tax, get rid of it, and, and never allow it, you know, ugly head again to rear. Uh, but in order to abolish the income tax, we have to abolish a good portion of the federal government. We have to actually cut government spending, and that is not what we're doing. In fact, even Donald Trump, who's president right now, is presiding over massive increases in government spending, a huge increase in military spending. In fact, a good chunk of whatever GDP growth uh, we've got since Trump has been elected has been uh, the result of military spending, right? But we're spending all this money on the military. We're spending all this money on, on welfare. And we're spending all this money on entitlements. And we're doing nothing about the exploding time bomb, the ticking time bomb uh, that has a very, very short fuse. And, and so as long as we keep making government bigger, unfortunately, the government is going to need an income tax and the income tax is going to have to get higher and higher and higher, which is another reason that Puerto Rico would be very foolish to get rid of these tax incentives. Because in 2020, if I'm right and we elect a socialist Congress and a socialist president, they are going to jack taxes through the roof and the biggest beneficiary would be Puerto Rico because if they still have these tax incentives available, a whole lot of Americans are going to be exercising that escape clause and they are going to be not dodging the draft, but dodging confiscatory taxes by taking refuge in one of the only places in the world where the IRS can't reach them. And that is Puerto Rico. <music>